Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. And this can be found on page 11 in your pew Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Why? That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we continue in our service this morning and worship uh, and we prepare to look at this passage that Paul's just read for us, I want to pray and ask for God Almighty to be at work here in this space right now. Let's do that. Father in heaven, you are God Almighty, and we stand before you in awe this morning and ask that you would be at work in fresh ways. Would you give us a fresh sense this morning of who you are who you've called us to be, and the relationship with you that you invite us to. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day again. Uh, in ways, kind of a weird holiday, right? Isn't it? Every one of us has a dad, good, bad, ugly. And uh, today we're, we're celebrating them all. And uh, I am so thankful. I have one of the really good ones uh, in my life, and I'm so grateful for my dad. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's strange to me. I, I just turned 37 last month. I turned 37. Uh, I left home when I was 18 years old, so more than half my life ago. Uh, I, I left home, been living out on my own, and yet, even to this day, even with the very, the best of dad who's so encouraging, supporting, I still, I still find myself longing for his approval, right? Wanting him to think that I've done a good job, that I'm a good, that I'm a good dad, that I'm a good parent, that my, my work matters, my career is successful. And I would guess for many of us, whether you recognize it or not, regardless of your upbringing, um, your parents may not uh, even be living any longer, but that yet we continue to crave their approval, what is it about us as humans that, that we just seem to be hardwired for that? And it's not just parents either, although, um, you know, the baggage we get from our families can be uniquely uh, difficult and ridiculous at times. So already, like Isla, Graham, Lucy, I'm, I'm sorry for whatever I'm passing on to you in that. But uh, it's not just family. You and I are consumed with the opinions of others. Right? We live for the approval of, of teachers, of bosses, for, uh, for example, every once in a while, our senior pastor, Tom Nelson, who I love and have worked with for so many years, he's usually at our Leewood campus, but maybe if he's not preaching there on Sunday, he'll, he'll stop by and visit Brookside, which I, I love that when he stops by. But I'll also be honest, in that moment, my heart also beats a little faster as I get up to speak and hope, man, I hope there's a lot of people here today. I hope I do deliver a good message that Tom thinks well of the campus when he's here. And even at work, at school, at home, with friends, enemies, coaches, strangers, right? It, it may not look the same for all of us, yet we, we all have this, this desire, this want for approval. So let me ask you this question. Who is your audience? Who is your audience? Whose approval do you crave the most? Because here's a startling reality. The audience that you choose determines the life that you will live. 
The audience that you choose determines the life you will live. Uh, Whoever's approval is the most important to you will shape your decisions. It will shape the trajectory of your life. And I've been reading recently, I'm still right in the middle of it, uh, Michelle Obama's autobiography, Becoming. And it's, it's captivating. I was, I was hooked from the, the opening paragraphs. And I really resonated with her when she candidly reflected on her path to law school. She writes this. She says, I can admit now that I was driven not just by logic, but by some reflexive wish for other people's approval too. She says, when I was a kid, I quietly basked in the warmth that floated my way anytime I announced to a teacher, a neighbor, one of Robbie's church choir friends that I wanted to be a pediatrician. My, isn't that impressive, their expressions would say, and I reveled in it. And years later with law school, it was really no different. I'm so thankful for her transparency because as I, I heard those sentences, as I was listening to this book, I, I just kind of stopped what I was doing and I, I was busted because I said, that, that is totally me. That sums up so much of my life and experience as a kid, as a college student, making choices and decisions based on what would earn kind of that my, isn't that impressive expression from teachers or adults or parents. So how do we navigate this dynamic in our lives? How do we escape sort of an unhealthy addiction to the approval of others? Well, one way as a culture that we've tried to do that is, is come up with a solution like this. Just, just stop caring. Be true to yourself. Who cares what others think? Which is actually close to being right, but not quite. Because we shouldn't let the opinion of others control us. But there's sort of three fundamental problems with just sort of taking the stance of just stop caring. Don't worry about what other people think. And, and the first problem is this, is that one, you just can't do it. Like, you, you just really can't in the end do that. You can't stop caring what people think. We need, as humans, other people in our lives, we need relationships that make our lives meaningful, which means that we are going to care what some people think about us. It's part of what a relationship is. But the second problem is that even if you could stop caring, you would alienate everyone you love. I mean, you'd be a terrible friend, a terrible spouse, a terrible coworker if you just never cared what any of those people in your life thought of you. And third, you'd only trade the pressure of others for the, the pressure you put on yourself. Not, not only would you be immensely lonely, but all that anxiety to find the best life would rest on you alone. So this morning, what if I told you there's another way a, a different way to go at this, a different way to live. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 17, to the verses that Paul read for us just a moment ago. And here in Genesis 17, and all throughout the Bible, really, it's clear that God should be our audience, right? And I'm a pastor, you probably expect me to say that. It probably wasn't a surprise. That God should be our audience. But why? Why is the God of the Bible the best audience? Well, let's look at Genesis 17. We've been studying the life of Abraham. We've been looking at how God promised. He calls him. He makes this promise to him and plans to redeem the whole world through this promise that he's made to Abraham, through his family, through Jesus, one of his descendants, many, many years later. And yet last week, yet after last week, what we saw Abraham do, if you were here with us, you may wonder if God should just start over. 
and choose someone different for this role. Because God had promised Abraham a son. That's the, such a key part of this whole journey. Thing. Abraham, you haven't had any kids. You're really old, but you are going to have a son. But the promise hasn't happened. The promise hasn't happened. And so last week, what we watched is, is Abraham and Sarah, they get impatient. And so Abraham, he sleeps with one of Sarah's servants, a slave named Hagar, and they have a son together. And then by the end of the story, Abraham essentially discards them both. And as readers, when we get to the end of Genesis 16, it's kind of like, wait, what? Is this our hero? Is Abraham the hero of the story? This guy's a mess. And let me tell you this just for the whole book of Genesis, really for the whole Bible. There's only one hero in the story. And it's not Abraham, it's not Jacob, it's not Isaac, it's not Samson, it's not Jonah. There's only one hero in the story. And it's Jesus. It's God himself. All the characters in Genesis, all the characters in the story of the Scripture are just as broken, just as flawed, in many cases more so even than you and I are. So 13 years have passed in the story since Ishmael was born, the son that Abraham fathered through Hagar. It almost makes me wonder if this was sort of God's cooling down period with Abraham. Like, I chose you, I revealed myself, I made these promises to you, and then now why don't you think about what you, you just did here with Hagar for, for about 13 years of silence. I'm not going to show up. But then God shows up again. And, and look at what he says. Look at verses 1 through 3. And, and these are so crucial, uh, we're going to spend most of our, our time with them this morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face. The audience you choose determines the life that you will live. But the key question to answer here again is why is God the best audience? What do we learn in, in these three verses that shows us that having Him as our audience will lead to the best life? Well, we're going to see three things here. And the first one is this we see that the God of the Bible is the best audience because He's all powerful. How does God describe Himself here? He says, I am God Almighty. God shows up after all these years and he announces his presence to Abram and he says, I'm God Almighty. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that, that term, that name of God before, El Shaddai. And from Genesis to Malachi, the, the Christian, the, the, the scriptures that are there before Jesus comes on the scene, the Old Testament, God is described 50 times this way as El Shaddai. A, a literal translation of that is probably something like God of the mountains, and in kind of ancient uh, Near Eastern thought, the culture in which Abraham lived, and, and this is being given, um, the higher something was, the closer it was to heaven, the more holy and the more powerful it was thought to be. Right? You don't get any more higher or more powerful than mountains. So is, is it any co coincidence, later on in the story, when another key figure in the first five books of the Bible, Moses comes on the scene, when God makes a covenant, a promise with him, when he reveals commandments to him, he does it on the mountain. The imagery that is evoked here with this El Shaddai is a God high and lifted up, strong and sturdy. This God is the God. 
the God who breathed creation into existence, the God who pronounced a curse on the rebellious creation, the God who brought a flood, who dismantled the power of Babel. This is God Almighty. This is the God who has the power to make a barren woman well past the age of childbearing give birth to a son. And now this God, with all of his powers, now right in front of Abram, out of nowhere, he appears to Abram after 13 years. So at this point, you might be wondering, okay, so is, is the God of the Bible the best audience simply because there's no one more powerful than him? Sort of a make him your audience or else? Maybe there is some sense of that, yes. I mean, the Bible talks about this, the fear of the Lord, this reverential awe and respect for God, this respecting of the boundary between creature and creator, acknowledging his rule and his authority. But I don't, I don't think that's actually the main thrust here. Because as we're going to see, God is a God of relationship. He, he isn't just sort of this cosmic speeding sort of traffic cop trying to catch you speeding, catch you doing something wrong. He isn't the cosmic judge at the band competition listening for that one wrong note, just trying to catch you out doing something you shouldn't. Yes, the God of the Bible is all-powerful, but the reason he is the best audience has more to do with how he uses his power, what he can do with his power, than just the fact that he has it. And this is what we see as we continue to the second point here, and that is that the God of the Bible is always inviting. He's always welcoming. He's always calling us to himself. He's, in fact, commanding us to come to him. He's always inviting. Let's keep reading verse 1. Abram was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Those two commands, to walk and to be blameless, they're, they're intricately tied together. Walk before me, it literally means walk in my face, knowing that I'm all seen. Walk in my face. I, I like how the Christian Standard Bible sort of tries to bring out that idiom. It says, live in my presence. Abram, live in my presence and be blameless. It's a command, yes, walk before me, but it's also an invitation It's an invitation back to the garden, to the kind of relationship, the kind of intimacy that we were made for, designed for in the garden before sin entered. God is saying, I want the kind of relationship that we had in the garden. I want this face-to-face relationship, this walking together. I've mentioned this before in sermons. I, I see this in my relationships all the time. I see it in my relationships with, with coworkers and friends, with my wife, with my kids. That when a relationship is broken, when it's, not, when it's not working like it's supposed to, it's so hard to look the other person in the eyes, isn't it? It's so hard to look them in the face. It's why apologizing over a text or even on a phone call is easier than doing it in person, right? Because you don't have to, to actually look the person in the eyes when you're doing it. Even with our kids now, Lucy and Isla, they're five and three, and, you know, inevitably they get into a fight or something, and it's like, Lucy, you need to say sorry to your sister. Sorry. It's like, no, look, look at your sister and tell her you're sorry. There's something about even that act of looking the other person in the face 
looking them in the eye that signals this, this relationship being restored. It's an invitation. It's, it's a call to, to step back into this relationship. God commands us, but it's an invitation to this life that He always has designed for us to live with Him. That's why sometimes I feel like some of the, the biggest parenting battles with, with our kids are that moment even with them of just, if I can just get them to look me in the face, look me in the eye. Whether it's, you know, they're, they're disobeying or acting up or something like that, look, you know, look at me. Or even if it's just that they're withdrawn or sad, I feel like the moment that you can make that eye contact, you can look face to face, that something happens. I don't know how deeply I'd grasped until I was a dad how much that, that call, look me in the eyes, could be both, yes, a command, but also an invitation, look me in the eyes. Live in my presence. God is calling Abraham. He's calling us. He's calling you back to a, that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy. The living God, living in his presence, that's what Adam did way back in the garden. Eve did way back in the garden before sin and shame entered. It's how Enoch and Noah, characters we've looked at already in the story of Genesis, that's how they lived. And so their lives were celebrated by God. They walked with him. They called on his name. That's what God is inviting us to. He's watching, but his invitation is to intimacy, to be known by him, to, to know him, to be caught up in his delight of his, of his love for us. He is so powerful and yet also so welcoming, inviting. So the God of the Bible is the best audience. Yes, because he's all-powerful. Yes, because he's inviting. But there's something even more happening in this passage, something even richer, something deeper, something more meaningful as to why he's worthy of your life, why he should be your sole audience, the primary audience. And this is actually where the second command comes in. We see it here in our third point. Is that only the God of the Bible holds the power to make you whole. Only the God of the Bible holds the power to make you whole. Again, you look at the second part of that verse, walk before me, and then the second piece, be blameless. Walk before me, be blameless. The audience that you choose determines the life that you live. And only this audience, only the audience of God Almighty, both commands and promises wholeness. Because I, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the language of blameless, but when, when I hear that word blameless, I, I mean, I think of, of like living without fault, uh, keeping my life buttoned up and tidy, perfect integrity, doing the right thing all the time, never making a mistake. And I just think that like perfection, like that bar is too high. To be blameless? But, but the Hebrew word that's, that's translated blameless, it's a hard one to translate, which is why we sometimes get tripped up. Blameless is, is probably fine, but it's, it's hard. It, probably the best language of, of, of this Hebrew idea of tome is wholeness or integratedness, wholeness, to be whole. And it's something that God commands here. Walk before me and be tome, be whole, be blameless. And yet the rest of this chapter is God's promise to Abraham to, to make his life whole. He's making this covenant with him. And he, and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But it reaffirms his promises to him even after he's completely blown it with Hagar. God's not done with him. 
Tome is not about never having made a mistake, but about living in relationship with God where He is the primary audience, where you're constantly turning back to Him, where you're constantly seeking His forgiveness and His relationship with you. I think everyone has a desire for wholeness in their life. And there's sort of two ways to interpret how these commands can interact. One view is to see these commands almost as sort of sequential, a way of saying, live before God, knowing He's watching, and be blameless, so don't ever mess up. Live before God's presence, He's watching, and don't ever mess up. In other words, we're responsible to do both of those things. Live before God, live in His presence, and don't make a mistake. But another really sort of common uh, way of of understanding these commands for Hebrew commands to interact like this is is not to see them as sequential, like one command and then two commands, but as consequential, that actually the first one leads to the second one. That if you do the first one, the second thing will happen as a consequence. So God's saying, live in my presence, walk before my face, and your life will become integrated. It will become whole. Like, like a tapestry interwoven throughout life. In this view, intimacy with God invites and produces wholeness, a wholeness that should remind us of Eden. God's saying, as you live in my presence, if you are living your life before this audience of one, walking before him, your life is going to naturally move to a place of being more whole, more integrated. You can't be in relationship with God, walking in his face, without that beginning to unfold in your life. There shouldn't be sort of a work bill that I'm one way here in the office with the staff and who acts one way, and then a husband bill that's kind of a little bit different. I have a little different audience at home, and then pastor bill on Sunday morning with all of you, and then neighbor bill when I'm out chatting with the the neighbors across the street. It should be the same everywhere. It should be the same with people when I'm standing in front of this congregation watching you, you watching me, as well as it should be when I'm utterly alone with no eyes watching at all, in a hotel room by myself for a trip. It should be the same person. No duplicity, no hypocrisy, no lies, no fragmentation. When you begin to walk before God, when you walk in His face, when you have this intimacy, this relationship, it begins to produce a wholly different kind of destiny, a whole different direction, trajectory in your life. Again, in the ancient Near East, and even today in many cultures around the world, names weren't just merely a way of sort of identifying one person from another, just so, you know, you can get someone's attention in the crowd. Names were full of meaning, that they contained hopes and aspirations and and sort of an identity for who that person would be. So is it any surprise then here after this extraordinary invitation to, to have a relationship with God that God renames Abram? Abram carries the meaning of exalted father, and it it actually kind of points back to his ancestry, his father, Terah. But here God gives Abram a new name, not Abram, but Abraham. And this new name doesn't point backwards to his past, but rather it points to a different future. The name Abraham emphasizes who he will become. He will become a father of a multitude of nations. Do you hear the echoes of of Genesis 1 and 2 here? That he's going to become 
fruitful, just like human beings were designed to be at the beginning, to fill the earth. His offspring will exercise dominion and rule over the earth under God's wise care, just like kings and queens, as they were intended to, as God's image bearers from the beginning. And all of this, when God comes to Abraham, gives him this invitation, and when Abraham accepts God's invitation to intimacy, to walk before him, you see that only God has the power, only the God of the Bible has the power to make us whole. This invitation to intimacy produces the integrity that we long for, this wholeness. Because if we're living before him, caught up in him, then we can become whole, all that he intended us to be. That's the, that's the promise. That's the invitation. It's the command. Okay, Bill, but how do I actually do this? How can we begin to live before him as his audience, make him our audience? There's a lot here. That's a lifelong journey, right, of of choosing that each and every day, responding to his invitation each and every day. But, but here are two things to begin. First, choose obscurity over popularity. Choose obscurity over popularity. This is one of the most counterintuitive and countercultural shifts in our lives as we are seeking to live before God, to make him our audience. We must begin to give the greatest amount of attention to who we are in those quiet places of our heart and our being and our life that no one else sees, rather than being consumed by what, what everyone else sees on the outside. It's the hinge between God's invitation and this promise is, is Genesis 17.3, that God invites Abraham to live before him, then we then Abram fell on his face, which just, by the way, is probably exactly the right thing to do if God ever shows up and speaks to you. Just take a cue from Abraham, fall on your face. That's a good, that's a good move in that moment. God appears to him after all these years, 13 years of obscurity and silence. Often we, we rarely even kneel to pray anymore, but Abraham, when no one else is around, no one else is watching, God comes to him, he humbles himself, falls on his face before God. And something is happening within him, not just for those around him. This isn't about anyone else watching. This is between him and God in this moment. Because here's the thing, God is way more concerned about forming you into the whole person that he desires for you to be than he is about giving you sort of success or popularity in the eyes of others around you. He's way more concerned about making you whole. And obscurity is often where this wholeness, this tome is best cultivated. And to be clear as well, this takes time. Maybe this morning you're sitting here thinking, like, I want that. I'm making a choice for that. I want to walk in God's face. I want to start on that journey, whatever it means. And you may not instantly feel all this integralness just kind of come into your life. You might not change overnight. It may take years to get healthy, years to get whole, years to get integrated. That's part of the journey, right? Because even part of the journey is the more that we become whole, the more we begin to experience this wholeness is we actually see more vividly the cracks and the broken parts of our lives. God's grace is sufficient. It comes in and it fills even more. There's this upward spiral of growth and wholeness. Obscurity is God's workshop, and he won't stop working on until you, until you have brought, been brought to wholeness and joy. 
So if you focus on popularity or other people's opinions, you are going to be enslaved to a thousand opinions, incessantly anxious about positive feedback, spending most of your time maintaining different portrayals of yourself and, and fragmented audiences that you have to live before. Which brings us to the second point. The only way to get rid of those fragmented audiences is to give yourself completely to Him. Give yourself completely to Him. C.S. Lewis once wrote, when we try to keep an area within us of our own, we try to keep an area of death. It's only when we give ourselves to Him completely, when we hold nothing back, that we begin to truly live in His presence, to truly walk in His face. And this is the great paradox, that the more we give ourselves to Him, the more free we actually become. Because true freedom is not just about throwing off all constraints. That is, in our cultural moment, when we talk about freedom, so often that's what we mean, just no, no constraints, no rules, no responsibility, total freedom to do whatever I want. But true freedom isn't about having no constraints, it's about becoming who we were meant to be. We are most free when we are living into who we were meant to be. David Brooks, a uh, New York Times writer, knows this. He wrote a fascinating article a couple months ago uh, in the Times called Five Lies Our Culture Tells Us. And he talks about how we think the good life is, is having no one ever anywhere tell us what to do. But then listen to how he responds. He says, in reality, the people who live best tie themselves down. It's the chains we choose that set us free. The people who live the best lives are those who tie themselves down. So it's the chains that we choose that set us free. It's this paradox again. And the same is true in life with God, and even better, sure, living before him is a tall order. I mean, if we kept reading in Genesis 17 here in a few minutes, God is going to ask Abram to get circumcised, right? No one said this was going to be easy for him. If God is our audience, though, it should affect everything about the way we live. There's nothing that he can't ask of us. Give yourself completely to him. Hold back nothing. It's the only way to be whole. It's the only way to freedom. It's the only way to joy. It's the only way back to the kind of life that we were intended to live in the garden. Reminds me of a tree we had growing in our front yard in, uh, in our house just here in, in Waldo. And uh, it's a great tree. Every spring its leaves would grow lush and green and then thrive for the summer. Each fall they would turn colors and drop to the ground Everything about this tree seemed healthy, normal, lush. Everything seemed great. But then one day I noticed there was kind of a, a crack near the, in the trunk near the base, and, and what attracted my attention to it in particular, it had been there for a while, but I noticed that there was a bunch of kind of hornets flying in and out, that they had made a nest there. And I thought, okay, I've got to take care of this with the kids around playing, and I don't want to get them stung. And so um, I killed the hornet's nest, which is a whole other story for some other time. Uh, it was kind of a dramatic moment with a bug spray and all that. But a few days later, came back to, once I was sure all the hornets were dead, weren't going to sting me, came back to kind of just clean all that out of the bottom of the tree. And as I began to scoop out that nest, more and more of the tree trunk on the inside just kept crumbling out and crumbling out. It was all spongy. It just kept falling apart. And I noticed that most of the trunk was actually completely rotted from the inside out, up the whole tree. 
and you know, just took a tree expert one minute to look at that and say, that, that tree, it's all it's going to take is one strong windstorm, and it's come, it can come down. It looked completely healthy on the outside. But despite how healthy it looked, it was dead on the inside. It had to be taken down. Now, I wonder how many of us are the same, uh, looking and living for any number of audiences. You can fake it for a while. Some of us for entire lives. And, and, and maybe you look great on the outside, the job, the family, the right smiles at the right times, but on the inside where only God can see. I don't want to end up like that tree. Fine on the outside, but death where it actually matters. Emptiness. The audience you choose determines the life that you live. And friends, only this audience, only God Almighty, only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, only he is the one who has the power through Jesus, the crucified and risen son, only he has the power to make you whole. Only he has the power to fill the places of emptiness, to heal the places of brokenness, which is why we need the Lord's table. If we're going to walk before God Almighty, we need forgiveness. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the promise that he will fill us back up again, that he will make us whole, that he has done that in the gospel, and that he will bring that work to completion. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give us some instructions on how we receive communion together here. But I also want to remind you that every Sunday during communion, we also have prayer in either sound booth. And such a part of this journey to wholeness, to integrity in our lives is about sharing that with other believers, with other followers of Jesus, bringing our prayers together, doing that. So every Sunday, if there's ever something going on, something you're struggling with, something you're excited about, something you just need prayer, there's always a, a pastor or part of our prayer team, someone there who'd love to pray with you in person.